Welcome to another edition of Down the Rabbit Hole Newscast, where our crew of Monday morning InfoSec quarterbacks discusses the important events affecting enterprise security and provides their unique analysis and perspective. And now, James Jardine, Michael Santarcangelo, and the White Rabbit, Rafael Los. All right, folks. Hey, welcome. Another edition of the Down the Rabbit Hole newscast. This is Raf, and with me is, as always, Mr. James Jardine. How are you, bud? Uh, you know, I'm doing good now that this, I think it's working so far with our recording. So, oh, Scott, God, Scott hopefully we'll this. hold out. You're going to jinx this. No, Michael, I'm not. Michael, are you there? I'm still here, and I'm still good. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, th- this is, we are we are literally, we have tried this for two days in a row, and uh, yesterday, apparently, Skype decided that, uh, obviously since we're all in different places, Skype decided that uh, compatibility is is um, is just sort of a nice-to-have uh, with Skype. So if Michael updated, James and I didn't, and therefore we all sounded like robots going through a static machine. Uh, it, was, it was awful, and then so we gave up. And then today, of course, it started out that way. Let's, let's hope it fixes itself and, and stays good so you guys can get the benefits of this fantastic content that we've got going on at you we are uh we're at june 1st it is uh it is officially is it summer yet guys i think it's officially summer now on and, the beach uh, it sure is so yeah i mean it, it is summer but i don't think it's officially summer until the 21st uh well whatever we're at episode 145 almost at 150 and let's just start this episode out with well the aclu as the aclu does because they're experts in this matter has uh Says has issued this open letter to the government of the United States, basically uh, stating that well, you know, y- you should uh, you should do better in security, and and it's called cybersecurity best practices. Um, I'll let you guys start on this because th- this this uh, this dear members of Internet Policy Task Force uh, open letter is 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 something. Well. You know, what I find interesting, and, you know, we talk about all the time all the different agencies that get involved, the FTC, the FCC, the SEC. Uh, now we're starting to see the ACLU um, start promoting this as well. And really what they're trying to push right, is a bug bounty program for all the, the, the federal or government websites and applications out there um, to do this. Now, I mean, look, we could go all day talking about bug bounty programs. I think there are a few I key you things. Could. I could. It would be no problem for me. I could go all week, actually. Uh, there, there are some things I actually, you know, agree with in here, right? Like, so they list out a couple different things of what they want. Um, they recommend publishing content information or contact information for agencies, information security teams. Okay, that's right? a good. Thing. Most websites, yeah, you should have some way for somebody. It, listen, if I stumble upon a bug on your system, right? Let's go back to the heydays of I just tried to put my name in there. My name has a single quote and it throws a SQL, a SQL error. If I accidentally find that, there should be a simple way for me to contact you and say, hey, there's a problem. I can't store my name in your site, blah, blah, blah. Here's the issue, right? So there should be some easy way. I'm to James O'Malley and I cannot sign up for your site. That's right. 
the second thing they want to push, um, you know, is the responsible disclosure policies. You know, we've gone back and forth. We've got public disclosure, responsible disclosure, coordinated disclosure. Look, we can come up with any type of disclosure name we want. We need to figure gentle this out, but disclosure. there should be a gentle disclosure. <laughs> there should be a way, right? If I did find that on the site, right? I stumbled upon it. I alert you, right? I shouldn't be worried that you're going to come try to, you know, press charges against me and say I was trying to hack your site. I just put my name in there, right? There should be ways for us to work together that if we find issues on the site, that we can then report them. And then, of course, finally, you know, they're pushing, saying, "Hey, look, we need to do the bug bounty program. We need to pay people for finding this stuff." And you know, we talk about bug bounties all the time. Um, what I, the part that really bothers me about a bug bounty program is we always spin it as, and it says it right in here, in an effort to disrupt the shadowy gray market and to provide some financial reward to researchers who notify the responsible vendor or developers, some leading technology companies have created bug bounty programs, right? So we keep going to this whole idea of, look, guys, people are going to find this stuff, and rather than you know, make them make the hard decision of illegally selling it or reporting it to you because they're f- afraid that you might come after them. Wait, 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 wait. We the should just hard decision of them. the hard decision of whether they're going to report it or not. Well, I'm sure he had Listen, air this, around that. Yeah, okay. The, yeah, please. Uh, it, it says right here in the letter that was there. Far too for far too long, researchers who discovered a security vulnerability have had to make a difficult choice: do the right thing. By telling the company responsible for the software, how is that a difficult choice? the general public, or sell the vulnerability right. off into a government. It's a false choice. So the ACLU is, is so the ACLU is 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 trying to make it seem like doing the right thing is a hard choice. But but what let's not crap? focus on the ACLU, okay? Because there are multiple resources we've seen this for where they've made the same exact statement that listen, if you don't pay them. They'll go sell it on the black market. And to me, that is not the way we want to spend bug bounty programs. We need to look at it as, look, it is a resource for us. It is a way to allow people to help test our sites, right? It's a third-party testing system that's going to test our sites for flaws, and we may provide reward back to them, right? I mean, that that's what it is. But we need to yeah, look at you know it what, let as me, let me. I just want to – step in for a second and and agree with you and add a dimension to it too, which is if you do something that's valuable, sometimes that value can come back to you. So you, you uncover something, you bring it to the organization's attention and they say, whoa, that could have been bad. Thank you. Here's a check for your trouble. Here's some free service. Here's a pat on the back, whatever. But have a you know, it, I, I think it's a good point. Well, but it's a good point because, you know, what James points out frequently and, and I've really come to agree with is bug bounties, as most of them are described, that's not about, quote, security research. It's QA testing. It's, it's people using Fair a site point. and testing it. And, and so if you're a tester, testers get paid. And it's essentially on-spec testing, which means you might not get paid. You're making an investment of your time. You're prospecting. And if you you know, hit a bug, you hit a vulnerability, and you can replicate it, and you can report that properly, then some of these organizations say, hey, we'll pay you for that. Well, we'll, so, we'll make it right for you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fine with, the, with this open letter all the way up until the last two paragraphs. And even that little ridiculously stupid, whoever wrote that should just 
be ashamed of themselves. That whole <laughs> for far too long. I mean, come on, hyperbole much? What what planet are we on? How is it a difficult choice to do the it's right thing? Planet security. Well, no, look, I'm not going to disagree right, well, with you. I know. But... I, look, I, I, I'll, I'll let's let's be clear because I, I think James is right to say let's sidestep the fact that it's ACLU. But I, but I do think at some point we need to say, wait, I'm sorry, what? I mean, I I, I don't see a clear connection to this and civil liberties. Um, but I'm sure someone can can correct us, hashtag DTSR, help us understand the role that the ACLU should play in these types of things. I think the better question is, you know, as we frequently talk about, why is nobody stepping forth to say, here's a clear definition of a researcher and here's the litmus test to determine if somebody is a legitimate security researcher or not? And then, and then when we talk about bug bounty programs, then, then we've got an interesting question of when you launch a bug bounty program, did you just increase your liability? Did you just give people authorization? Remember, we talk about authorization under CFAA all the time. Did you just authorize people to test the hell out of your site? I mean, like we, we talked about United's approach, and it, it was a little bit of an eye roll in the industry, except for they said, don't do this, 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 or this, and we will not reward you for these things. But if you find these classes of problems, please tell us and we'll give you miles for it. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going, maybe that's not so stupid. Yeah, okay. But look, the last paragraph of this is, uh, James, I think you might have an opinion on this. Uh, in an effort to disrupt a shadowy gray market. Okay, let me let me stop you right there, happy-go-righty. Um, th- <laughs> this is this is the problem here. We're, we're, we're making or trying to convince people that you're going to disrupt the, quote, shadowy gray market by paying bug bounties. So the bug bounties we've seen to date pale in comparison to the, to the dollars and the cost that I've, that I've heard and read bug bo- bugs get sold for, especially good ones on the black market. So for a cross-site scripting on you know, healthcare.org, uh, so if the government pays them, let's just assume the government got into this and they paid them a thousand dollars for this, you know, whatever mid-grade bug. Well, you know, you know, it would be thirteen thirty-seven. Yeah, well, it has to be because it has to be hacker leet. Um, anyway, so yeah. they get a thousand three hundred thirty-seven dollars and twenty-one cents. I don't know, um, or forty-two cents, just to be funny. But so they get money, right? What is the cost of this on the black market? Is it is it more than that? I suspect yes. I suspect they're always going to get better. This is this should not. This is not a, in my mind, and I could be wrong, guys. Hashtag DTSR. Tell me I'm wrong if you think so. I'm sure plenty of you might. Um, Even if you is, don't think so, go ahead. And tell me he's wrong. Yeah, shut up. Uh, so this is not <laughs> about disrupting the market because this isn't really no. about. You're never going to get to the point where you convince unethical people to do the right thing by paying them money. This is a false start. To, be, to begin yep. with, what you're trying to do is convince people that are good to then do QA for you. And th- this is not about the shadowy gray market. The crap, really? Get out of here. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I mean, if you want to do a bug bounty, call, call it what it is. If you want to distort economics, uh, please stop. Yeah, listen. So. I mean, look, I, to me, a bug bounty is an extension of your testing arm, right? I mean, it's. Hey, we're into production. We're allowing people to, yeah. to test the site because we decided we we're going to do that. All right. It's an extension of our QA fe- functionality. But if you're out there thinking about implementing this, one, 
don't just rush out and throw a bug bunny out there. Even a lot of the bug bunny activists will tell you, you have to be ready. You have to be mature enough to be able to support it because you're going to start getting a whole bunch of uh, submissions. You need to be able to handle it. If you're not ready to handle it, a bug bounty is not ready for you, right? So we can't just write out and say, man, you should offer a bug bounty on every site. No, you need to make sure that you're able to handle a bug bounty, right? There's a maturity level to be able to support a bug bounty. We need to talk about, and Michael mentioned it, right? Liability, you know, what are your liability concerns if you're thinking about doing a bug bounty? You have both your liability concerns of, hey, I'm opening up saying people can test my site, which if you get breached, are you more or less liable because you've now done that? Now, how about from the tester's standpoint? I mean, as a pen tester, when I test stuff, uh, you know, liability is kind of drawn out a little bit in the contracts I have with my clients. But what is it from a tester's point of view? And I've gone through and read some of the licensing agreements from some of the bug bounty uh, vendors out there, you know, that the, the marketplace. And I can tell you right now, they absolve themselves. They do not absolve you. So what's your liability? Also mm. keep in mind Right, that when you come out here and sign up and say, hey, I'm going to offer a bug bounty, okay, here's where we start getting into. I've heard numerous people say, hey, look, I'm, I'm looking for something. I've done capture the flags, but I'm really trying to get into security. Where can I start? Go do bug bounties. Bug bounties are the new learning ground and the proving ground for people getting into security. So what you're doing is you're inviting people to come to your site that have zero to no experience <laughs> to, to learn on your site, right? So you want to be specific on the scoping. You mentioned United. Hey, look, no denial of service attacks. I don't want you running automated scanners. I don't want you doing this. It is a learning ground. It is the new learning ground for people to get into this. So you're inviting inexperience. The chances you're going to have the highly skilled hackers out there coming in looking for stuff on your site are slim. They're going to hit it first. They're going to find the stuff. They're going to get paid out. And then the rest of the time, it's going to be people trying to get into the market, market themselves, and build themselves up. So there's lots of things you have to think about when you're going to go implement oh, man. this. You, know, you I can't just, just say implement a bug bounty. You're, well, I mean, you're right, right? And and that means that, that you're going to find people that can hack the bug bounties. They figure out a little trick that's easy for them to spot, hard for other people to figure out. They'll go collect rewards across 10, 12, 15 different bounties and go, all right, I'm good, right? So it's, it's yeah, it's, the whole thing's interesting. It, it clearly merits a lot more conversation. So here's what I think is interesting then. We're saying, hey, every government site should be able to do this. I'm guessing that includes the IRS, um, and um, and that's great because they seem to have some challenges lately, including um, I guess now Russia. So we don't we don't say China anymore. Did they roll attribution dice on this? They must they have told us about their <laughs> they absolutely their must data have. breach. They they rolled attribution dice, and it turned out it came up Russia. Oh, so sorry, it wasn't China this time. It, yeah. Does it matter really? I mean, does it really matter to anybody that's that's going to be worried about their taxes, whether it was their tax info was stolen by Russia or China or Guatemala or Antarctica? What? What? Seriously, why does it matter? Why is this part of the headline? Because it's salacious, like anything else. I think too, it's it's also that opportunity to go. I mean, it wasn't us; it was the Russians, All right? I mean, this feels very calculated politically to me. Um, in order to affect something in a negotiation with Russia someplace or, or whatever else. I'm actually surprised we didn't just blame it on the FIFA folks and, and carry on with that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it, you it's, know it's, what it's, I, I find interesting about this 
uh, incident altogether is the way we see it in the headlines, all this stuff, it comes across as though the IRS site was hacked. And when you actually start reading the articles, they come out and say, well, the IRS site wasn't really hacked. Uh, what they did was they used existing functionality the way it was supposed to be used, but they used information stolen from possibly other breaches, maybe the Anthem breach, maybe, uh, you know, Care for some of these other ones, right? Like they went in, they, they got social security numbers, names, birth dates, uh, you know, all this stuff needed to be able to then go on to this transcript functionality of the IRS website and say, well, what's the name? This, social security number, this, right? They had the information laid out for them to be able to go in and use this functionality. And I think the biggest takeaway here for a lot of companies is, you know, authentication can be very difficult. How do I know you are who you say you are? Especially in this situation, it's not like a an email system where like, well, put your email address in, I'll send you a link. So you, as long as you can get that link, I verify you, that's your email address. We're actually trying to verify that this is the person. And yeah, it's, how do it's, you do it's that? It's actually identity proofing versus authentication, right? I mean, this is the, the what they're talking about is identity proofing. And it's it's how many attributes and what kinds of things do you use? What sorts of information do you use in order to val to validate somebody's identity? Um, and, and although we often consider it part of authentication, it's oftentimes the precursor to authentication and or I'm comfortable lumping it in and saying, okay, it's part of the way that we authenticate that this person is actually who they say they are. You know, it's interesting. There's two things I want to bring up that came out relative to this story, right? So we're going to set Russia aside because as we said, Raf, I don't think the people affected particularly care. So there's a couple of things that are interesting. It's only 100,000 taxpayers. That to me feels like it's a, uh, it's a test. Now, broader than that, we saw a lot of people come out and say, oh, see, this is the problem. This is because of the Anthem breach. Wow, that's, uh, that's quick. Um, maybe, right? But, but if you could tell me it's the Anthem breach, there's probably a thousand other breaches. So let's leave that aside for a second, but say that's an, that's an interesting point, and that brought up some pretty interesting discussions on Twitter this week. But here's the second part, too. I saw a headline now surface to say, well, uh, you know, they cut the, the percentage of – what did it start with? Budget, and then it was the, they cut the percentage of staff, and and the the implication was well, I mean, if they cut the budget and staff, then that meant that they must have screwed security, which clearly means they're idiots. And just so we're we're clear from my perspective, that doesn't mean anything. Um, I don't know what yeah. it means. I don't know what the budget was. I don't know how much of it was wasteful. I don't know if it meant that they outsourced. I don't know if it meant that they figured out how to reduce some of the, the insane amount of stuff that we do in security today. I mean, I, I, the two are, are inconsequential, especially because let's go back to the method of entry. I used information to pretext to pretend that I was, in fact, one of these people to then get access to other information I didn't previously have. I'm sorry. How many of you running security programs today would have caught that? If it yeah, looks well, like a actually, legitimate person doing legitimate things, uh, you're, I mean, your systems are finally tuned enough that you're knocking that out of the park? Wow. According to one of the things I read, they had, tried, they had attempted over 300,000, and they were able to, I think, catch it or something and stop it. So it does sound as though they may have uh, actually seen it and caught it quicker so we didn't lose as many. Uh, but... What I find then interesting kudos. is there was also kudos to them. Yeah, uh, and so there was another article, uh, and I'll see if I can find it so we can get it in the show notes uh, that 
talks about all these, you know, they had audits against the IRS, you know, since 2007, and they had all these, you know, vulnerabilities, internal issues, this and that, you know, and, and this whole article focuses on all these places where they were neglectful, if you will, on security uh, within their systems. But I go back to none of that matters because they didn't use any of those flaws. They used an actual functioning part of the system the way it's supposed to be used. They just fortunately had the information. It's like somebody going and you know stealing a database of passwords from site A, taking it over and using those credentials to log in on site B because you use credentials across sites. That's not site B's fault that you use stolen credentials from site A, right? That they weren't neglectful from that. That's how the site was supposed to Yeah, it function. certainly doesn't feel like negligence uh, as we typically pointed out. So let's look at it then as we like to do. So you're in enterprise security today. You're a leader or you're a business-minded professional. And you're looking at this. Here's the conversation I'd like to start having in my organization. If something like this were to happen to us, would we see it? What damage could be done? And therefore, in terms of priority, is it something we should start to look for? Is it something we should think about? You know, one of the things, uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing this article right now. Um, Peter Hess wrote an article about the ability to improve user experience as a chief mechanism to reduce risk. But one of the things that he pointed out was that when we start to develop these pathways, websites, applications, or otherwise, it's actually useful during the testing process and the development process, which James, I know, goes into to your, your area and your expertise to pay attention to what people are doing. And typically, we use it pretty narrowly because we're just trying to figure out, did we get the functionality right? Can we ship it? Are we good to go? So Peter's point is, why not include security in that and, and look at what people are doing because then we can narrow those pathways and we can make it really easy, right? Take the friction out for people to do the things that we want them to do that they need to do to do their jobs but those other things that we've incorporated into it because either we didn't think about it, we're not sure they might need it or whatever, well, now we can start to put flags on it or we can start to look for ways to say, hey, if somebody moves out of bounds, that's kind of telling to us. All right, let's look at that. And, and this is where we get those opportunities for collaboration. So a story like this is great. If it were me, enterprise, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, I would set aside China uh, and Russia and all the attribution stuff. It's not important. I would set aside, as James already suggested, all the findings of everything else. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing now that says if somebody else had access to information, perhaps from a previous breach of another company or multiple previous breaches, and they've figured out that some of these folks might be uh, on our systems, what damage could be done? I, I think it's a, it's a great exercise. It's a short conversation, and if people get excited about it, uh, probably in a somewhat animated way, then you know you've got an opportunity there. What do you, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, that's but, the best I can come up with looking at this f from a productivity perspective. Yeah, and, you know, quite honestly, listen, I mean, as you're sitting there talking about them, I'm no, sitting there thinking, lie to me, lie to me. you know, if, uh, if you're looking for a security research project, why don't you go out to the IRS website? Why don't you go out to... Uh, you know, some of the credit monitoring sites, right? Go fill out. And I'm not saying hack their sites. I'm saying walk through the steps to request your credit report. Walk through the steps to get your transcript. They took the site down or that page down, so you can't do that for this one. But walk through those steps and see how they're doing the identity proofing, how they're doing the authentication. 
and lay it out and say, hey, you know what? Here's where we're falling down. Here's where we could do better. Because at this point, they're doing what the, the, the common practice is, the norm, which is they're asking for X, Y, and Z information. And then I, I believe, I didn't see it, you know, they're asking things like, you know, what was the name of the teller of the branch that you opened in your bank account 45 years ago? You know, and you get multiple choice questions to answer that. But Iris, that would be a little bit closer to what I would consider security research of, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to analyze all these sites. I'm going to analyze how we're doing this identity proofing. What could happen if XYZ data is breached? How could we defend against that? Is two-factor authentication a possibility? You know, we can't just sit there and say, oh, SMS is going to be the answer because not everybody requesting a tax Gosh. form is going to have the ability to do SMS. Is email SMS the answer? SMS has is, its own problems. Yeah. Right. You know, there's problems out there, but go out there and look at a bunch of systems. We're not targeting a system. Look across the board. See how people are doing this. Who's doing well? Who's not doing so well? And find out why it is that they're not doing well. And then write that up. Figure out what the recommendation yeah, you is. You know what, though? If you write something up, here, here's what I want to see. What do you like? Please, in this industry, can, can we just for a little while set aside some of the things that we don't like? I know we've got plenty of those examples. But, you know, you've raised a really good point here, James, which is, look, we've said traditionally for years, things like mother's maiden name and city that you were born in, those things are very easy to get on public records. A lot of organizations in cities and towns, as they have gone online in an effort to serve people, have made a lot of those records public because that was in their charter to do that. We're going to go through a period as we adjust and figure those things out. So we get it. By the way, right under fiat, you can't use your social security number for an identifier. That's that's in the statute. We do it all the time, but that's in the statute. So what it also does is it lets us have that conversation. Instead of lecturing people and bemoaning all these horrible things to say, well, well, what what is there that we can do? And there are companies that have solutions to this. Maybe it's worth talking to them. Maybe it's actually worth us talking to them. But but here's the thing too that that I that I, I, I just want to point this out because you know typically we, we like to skewer people who talk about complex and sophisticated attacks and everything else. And oddly enough, they didn't do any of that here, um, except for this: the a hundred thousand people who had their tax information accessed. They're going to get free credit monitoring. Just so we're clear, we have this challenge in this industry of conflating credit fraud into identity theft. But if you had enough information to get an IRS system to get access to everything else, I would not be worried about credit fraud. I'd be a whole lot more concerned about identity theft. And this is one of those times when I'd be looking at that saying, this, this is not enough. This is not acceptable. That this needs to be identity theft, and if you're one of these hundred thousand people, you really need to be paying attention to this type of stuff. Well, and, and let's let's see. Look, identity theft is predicated on the fact that you have information out there, and I think in more than one instance we've seen in the last what three months that there is more than enough information out there on people: social security numbers, name, address, uh, email. Uh, you know, things on Facebook that you give away to give you that ability that the IRS then got, let's call it defrauded, I guess, with. And, you know, Care First is uh, is right on that list, especially recently. Yeah, we see the new trend, right? We, I mean, l let's make a quick comment. If you're in retail, 
I wouldn't let your tie out quite yet and go, whew, good, they're onto the medical field. We're watching the, the ram scrapers and the, the POS attacks really start to pick up again. So retail, uh, you're in the summer months. This is your time to get ready and gird your loins because the, the winter is coming and with it and all the sales are, are going to come your attacks. But yeah, we've, we've certainly seen a shift now. The, it, and, and here's the question that I'm not sure we've resolved out yet. Why are they going after the, the medical stuff? Is it because it's an easier fruit now and it has everything these folks want? Or B, is it because now they can use this in as a predicate for other attacks? Or C, is there actual value to stealing medical information? Like, does this lead to medical fraud and Medicaid fraud? Heaven help us because that's already out of control. What do you guys think? What's the, what's the angle if you're an attacker? Why healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, by digging in, you know, I mean, I don't hang out in the dark web or whatever they want to call it, whatever CSI Cyber calls it these days. It's the um, shadowy gray area or whatever the ACLU <laughs> does. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a matter of what people are looking for, you know, and I mean, I think people are going out there. They know they can get certain types of information um, and, you know, what's being sold on the underground, what, what's available, what's worth money and, you know, Right now, the trend just happens to be health, you know, and, you know, maybe it is because the uh, POS systems are not really as popular right now. You know, they're not as busy uh, as they are during like the holidays. They sure did so, name those hey, right, didn't they? POS. You know, yeah. You know, let, let's move over off, and don't. do this. Well, here's the thing, right? What's interesting. DTSR. Well, let me just, as you're listening to this and, and you're, you're yelling at your radio, listening to us with all the stuff we missed, hashtag DTSR. Why are the criminals... And this element, why are they attacking the healthcare systems? Low-hanging fruit uh, because of the value of the information, because of, of the ability to pretext attacks and fraud, all of the above or something we completely missed. I know a lot of you uh, that, that I interact with are in this field. So I, I, believe me, I, I know you've got pressure here. Why? What, what's your concern? Are you doing these briefings? Is the beginning? Are we in the middle of it? Is this going to be something that we're going to contend with for a long period of time? Tell us what you think. Tell us tell us what your experience is. Well, and, you know, I think what's what's interesting with this and same thing with uh, credit card, you know, on the financial side, you know, you start seeing it, right? Uh, Anthem with its 80 million or up to 80 million. I don't think a number actually came out with that of how many actually got breached. You know, it was always the up to 80 million. Uh, well, you know, sounds we've a lot got better. this one here where it's 1.1 million, you know, but how many of those crossovers? Just like you see. You know, Target and Home Depot, right? How many of those actually are crossovers and, you know, are actually new breached accounts, right? Versus how many are just there? The, the big difference is, right, credit card, I get new credit card. I don't really get a new health history. I wish I could have a new health history. I'll be honest with you. But we don't get there to you just go get again. a new health Hold history. So once that one's gone, <laughs> once it's stolen, well, and it's that's, out there. that's that's why I wonder, right? I mean, I, I, and that's why I'm kind of pushing on this question because we, you know, we talk a lot about, and, and I don't mean this as a springboard into it. And Raf, I know scenario you spend a lot of time, but we, we talk a lot about threat intelligence. We talk a lot about fundamentals. We talk a lot about a lot of things, and and but what I think is important is that if you're in this position in the health industry, and there's a lot of roles to play, whether you're on the insurance side, the provider side, the blended side, the hospital side, the I mean, goodness, this is big. But here's the thing. Is this just because attackers, right? When we look at sophisticated attackers, like actual legitimate sophisticated attackers, they're, they're, they both are highly specific and highly inspecific, but opportunistic. So it's quite possible that 
hospital systems and medical information is just opportunistic. The controls that we've placed around financial and telecom data have have ratcheted it up, right? And we've created that nice slope where it's just easier for them to go someplace else, dot, 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 for now. But it could also be, as James just pointed out, the health information and the health history on individuals is is actually much more powerful. And therefore, it's trading at a higher price on those shadowy dark webs and, you know, and those, those uh, markets. But I, I, if I'm in this role, I'd want to start to at least build that narrative so that as I'm explaining this to my executives, not with the hyperbole, not with uh, the, the goal of, of building a kingdom, but to just to say, hey, folks, we need to get our heads wrapped around this because we need to build better sustainable systems. And then as we always talk about, so what's the role that the patients have in this? How are we protecting so, our information? How are we advocating for this? Yeah, well, so, you know, as you're talking about that, uh, Michael, you know, I was thinking, you know, how that information doesn't change as much, right? Credit cards, mine gets popped, I get a new one, the credit card's no good anymore. Um, but how are most companies that we're seeing getting breached these days, right? It's through some sort of phishing campaign, they're doing spear phishing. Social engineering is exploding as the entrance way into a lot of these breaches. And to have a set of static data, like your health history, your social security number, like that type of stuff from a social engineering standpoint could be huge because I know it's not changing, right? So if I've got your information, how, how hard is it for me to create a site, to create a ruse to come after you? And you're like, man, this guy's got, I mean, he's got my social security number. He, he knew that I went and saw the doctor on, you know, September 18th of 2003 for X, Y, and Z. This must be legit. Oh, let me put in my credit card number. I do have a bill to pay here. Or, you know, is that actually more valuable from a phishing standpoint and, and social engineering than credit card information is because it actually leads you to grab credit card information? I, I could see that as a good vantage point. Yeah, I mean, th that's why I think this merits a little bit more conversation and, and as, as we think about it because if – I mean, we just talked about identity proofing. We need to get a better understanding of how these systems work because, I mean, if, if we're going to fool ourselves again with this riddle of, well, if I tell you how it works, the criminals might figure it out. Kids, the criminals already figured it out. They know it. So, so the question now is, are some of these breaches changing? I mean, look, I, I am happy to admit I frequently challenge everybody with where's the harm? When I wrote the book Into the Breach, I, I postulated there'd be more harm than there is today. So I've taken time to reflect on that to say, was I right? Were we right? Where is the harm? And when it comes to payment cards, I, look, you're, I'm, I'm open to having my opinion shifted with evidence over time. But right now, there's a cost of convenience. And if you use a payment card, you're accepting that cost of convenience. The, the, the numbers of fraud right now tend to be low. Uh, I think we're going to watch some stuff change. I think mobile, mobility is going to change some of this as well. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch it all settle itself out. But if you, at least for today, if you still want to just pay in cash and write checks, you have those options. And there's a number of protections around them, as well as the risks associated with them. But when it starts coming to other stuff... I don't. I can see pathways for harm, and so it's interesting to say, yeah, where's the harm? Where where are we focusing? And then look at stuff like this and say, you know, maybe, maybe there's more here uh, than we need, uh, which is interesting, right? Because we we've been pushing this 
under the guise of insurance uh, for, uh, well, since what, 1996? So we're going 20 years of saying we need to push the medical industry to get to electronic health records. The government has pushed a lot of money into it uh, in the, what you in wish the United for. States. Well, and that's that's kind of what I'm looking at here too, right? I mean, we, we talked about this with Windows XP. We've talked about this all the time. We've got to start slowing down a little bit. And on one hand, we go, I want all this stuff online. On the other hand, whoa, if you put that stuff online, you can use it against me. That's bad, right? Well, you know, uh, now uh, we're also watching the insurers catch up with this. Yeah, are we ever? Uh, let, let me take that one because I've got some. Uh, that's a great segue into this next, last, and final a little bit of uh, a little bit of news. Uh, CNA Insurance. So a, a CNA Financial Corp unit is seeking a judicial ruling that it should not be obligated to pay the four point one million dollar not dollar settlement uh, under an an exclusion in the hospital system cyber policy because here we go the system failed to meet the minimum required practices. Those three words are in air quotes. Uh, it said it followed uh, in the insurance application. So, well, that's interesting, and this goes back to the uh, cottage health thing that came, uh, gosh, I think I want to say it's be around uh, 2013 or something. Let me let me yeah. start by saying they were real quotes, not air quotes, and I, I freaking love it because it didn't say <laughs> best practices. And, and what I love, one step further, minimum required practices, it said it followed in its application. So it's not even inflicting some ad hoc, post-breach, these are what you should have done things, which they could hash out in a court. This is saying you applied for the insurance. We said there were certain minimum requirements you needed to meet, certain practices you needed to uphold. You testified to it or you attested to the fact that you did that and you got popped. We came in, we double-checked, and you didn't do it. You know, this this works in auto insurance. And by the way, I typically hate mixing these metaphors so much, but you know, if if you're at fault, your insurance company doesn't cover you or they don't cover you the same way. Uh, and there's all sorts of other places where this happens. So frankly, I, I, I don't have privy to what those minimum required practices were, but on its face, I like this. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you start thinking about it, I mean, think of the people that fill out these questionnaires and, you know, you get them all the time, the vendor risk assessment, hey, you need to fill out this and are you doing secure code review? Well, we got a guy in the back that found a cross-site scripting flaw. Well, yeah, we, we do secure code review. You know, you fill out <laughs> documents just so you can make sure you're checking yes to every box, right? The ones that you need to do uh, in the event, in, you know, the hope that, you're never going to get to a situation where they're actually come back and validate, hey, were you really doing secure code? Well, not really, but we kind of were. And you got to wonder, you know, in this situation, you know, with somebody going through and like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And by the way, they reference in here the breach allegedly occurred because Cottage and or its third-party vendors stored medical records on a system that was fully accessible to the Internet but failed to install encryption or take other security measures. Okay, well, one, it may not even have been them. We don't know because they don't give us all these details. But again, right, understand your policies. What did you agree to when you decided to get cyber liability insurance? What does it cover? And, you know, let this be a lesson learned. If you said you're doing something or they set out a minimum requirements and you said, yeah, we'll do this, well, then you better be doing it when it comes time because if you're not, right, they're going to seek judgment to say, look, you weren't doing this. We agreed on this. You did that. We're scot-free here. And I got to wonder, and they'll man, win. will at some point, 
Yeah, and you know, will we see at some point these uh, stop becoming self-fulfilled questionnaires, and you're actually starting to yes. see auditors go out for insurance companies? And I want to see where well, you're doing yeah, this, so, this, this, this. No, this. I mean, I, I actually have some insight into that. It's a marketplace I studied. I mean, you know, part of my my undergraduate degree is is economics, and oddly enough, I have a degree in health policy analysis. Um, and so we we took a lot, I spent a lot of time looking at insurance in, in particular. Um, and and I'll I'll spare you guys with one small comment. Health insurance, as we look at it today, is not insurance. But what's nice about the CNA organization here is that this is this is traditional insurance, right? So so let's just kind of go back for a second because there's a couple things here that I think are really interesting if you're in the enterprise security space and you're looking at this. The first of which is insurance is a valid risk mitigation mechanism, and it should be used when something has a low probability but a high impact. That is a traditional, classic, and appropriate use of insurance. Now, I think we could probably argue that breaches are becoming more prevalent, more frequent, right? I'm I'm a proponent of the assume breach mentality. I know we've talked about that here frequently. I, I think you guys are on board with that. Um, but so we, we can argue, um, however, if it happens to you, it's still somewhat catastrophic. So it, it becomes akin more to like um, uh, car insurance and other types of things. But I, if you order a larger policy, uh, you should start to expect that there will be an audit or some sort of an analysis ahead of time to validate that you are worth underwriting that risk. They are in the risk business. But the second part to it then is that if you go to file a claim, you should absolutely expect that claim to be audited. So roll backwards and say if you're on that enterprise security team, this is your opportunity to work with your legal department and whomever else is part of this. Because when, when somebody is tasked with check the boxes on this, even if you take that in artfulness, what we've learned frequently with our discussions on this podcast is the terms don't always mean the same things. You need to know up front, when I read this, what does this mean? And there needs to be clarity the legal concept of mens rea. And it's very popular in those circles. That's the language that they're going to use and you need to have it. Well, I would also then ask, how will I demonstrate this to you pre, post, uh, pre and post breach? Well, so this is, here's the thing, right? So to be more concrete, the, co the complaint that they have to follow, uh, failure to follow minimum practices, it says, uh, Cottage's internet service servers permitted anonymous user access, thereby allowing electronic personal information to be become available to the public via Google's internet search engine. Okay, that's probably not good. We can all pretty pretty much agree that that the way that's worded, that's pretty bad. But it then goes on to say the hospital system failed too, and here it is, continuously implement, this is exactly what you just said, Michael, continuously implement the procedures and risk controls identified. That's it, right? This is the point in time uh, problem that we have where we're compliant today, we check the box today, nobody's nobody's going to get us, and, and and magically at some point after during the uh, during the next you know year we get breached, and what's the result of that? Well, oh, we were compliant at one point. We were secure at one point. But this is continuous. Like this is just the emphasis on you have to continue to do your job, continue to be vigilant, and, and you can't just do it once, have a statement that you've done well, it, and forget about it. Yeah, but if, if we want to be more concrete then, it also means in this application, when, when you say, hey, do we do patch management, you need to say yes. Now, if I say patch management and you say patch management, 
Uh, I mean, let's use yesterday. I applied the patch to the Skype update before you guys did. Um, and, and we joked when we tried to record yesterday that I was the negligent idiot uh, who didn't go through a proper testing <laughs> procedure and, and everything else. So, you know, and as we as we chalk it up to, hey, well, that's a good lesson learned. By the way, we still don't actually know if our incompatibility uh, and our inability to record yesterday was due to those varying levels of, of patchiness or if it had to do with some transient Internet thing or whatever else it could have been. And so we logically jumped to a conclusion of, well, it's worked before. It's not working now. It's probably a Skype problem next, which we see happen in the enterprise a lot. So there's a lot of lessons there. But so now it says I'm going to continuously maintain that. Okay. Well, I mean, when we go talk with other folks, we know that patch management spans the range from systems unpatched for, for years to systems unpatched for days. To So we as an industry are still trying to wrap our head around the right way to do patch management. That means if you're going to do an insurance application and check a box that says, yep, we do patch management, we do it consistently, um, then that really needs to be defined. Because, uh, you know, like I like the fact where it says, right, quote, failure to regularly check and maintain security patches on its system. It's failure to regularly reassess its information security exposure and enhance risk controls. All great words that mean absolutely nothing to me. I, I would I would want to know, right? So I would work with my legal team. And and this is the stuff I focus on. You want to be a leader. A leader doesn't just say, okay, guys, I'm the IT guy and I'm the security guy and I, I checked. Yep, we do those things. The leader says, that's great. Hey, what does that mean? Guys, listen, let me let me show you what we do today. Let, bring the legal team in. Help them understand. Get them to the place where they understand and say, this is what we do. Is that what the insurance company is asking for? And, and, and what are they going to look for as proof of that? Because if we need to use this, I want to make sure that my systems, that my team, that our house is in order. Guys, this might require some change on our part. Let's factor that in to the cost of, of this insurance and maintaining it so that in the event we're going to need to use it. And guys, I hate to say this, but when it comes to breaches, we might need to use it. I want to make sure we're in good shape. We part of the team on that? That's a leadership play right there. And, and that's what I like to see more of. Now, where does this go from here? Well, this is great because as more companies do that and, and we get into those discussions, I don't mean it's adversarial. I don't mean, well, screw them. We'll define it this way. I mean, let's sit down and hash it out. The insurance companies are in this fantastic place to really start to aggregate this information and then show us where people are getting popped and, and, and where their payouts are. And we all know then that they will either move to bolster those protections or exclude those things from their, their policies. And that's going to be our signal as an industry where to focus. So I, I prefer this happening and this model to government regulation, uh, which is indiscriminate, 100%. I'd do it more if, the, if that were technically possible. So the answer to it then is this is our leadership opportunity. Let's get more insurance companies to do this, and let's make sure that, that we're part of that constructive conversation and modifying the structure of our organizations to comply with these policies pre uh, and, and post uh, need for them. And, and guys, that's a fantastic lesson to uh, end this show on, um, particularly because one, we're out of time, and two, I like ending this on a on a high note, on something, a, a teachable moment perhaps. And uh, insurance is one of those things that I think um, has the potential to f be a force uh, for, for actual change. And if it does, then that's fantastic. If it doesn't, then well, you know, at least... At least it doesn't, right? 
But uh, as Michael always says, read our segues, uh, half, hashtag DTSR. And uh, as we're most of the way to show 140, um, 145, as we're most of the way to show 150, catch us, uh, catch us again next time around. Folks, hope you've enjoyed listening. If you've got opinions on the topic, obviously I'd like to hear them. Hashtag DTSR. Not just rating our segues, but kind of give us what you think. I mean, I'm sure you don't all agree as you're listening, and some of you are shouting at your uh, headset uh, going, you guys, you're missing a point or something. Um, let us know. Hashtag DTSR on Twitter. And uh, for Michael and James, this is Raph. going to let this go and sign off. We'll see you again another time. We'll catch you next week. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to Down the Rabbit Hole Enterprise Security News. Give us feedback on our website, podcast.whiterabbit.net. That's W-H-1-T-3-R-A-B-B-I-T.net. Or on Twitter at WhiteRabbit, W-H-1-T-3-R-A-B-B-I-T. Till next time, on behalf of our co-hosts, James Jardine, Michael Santarcangelo, and the White Rabbit, Rafael Los, thanks for listening. <laughs>